I'm Andy Olson. I'm the Prairie on Farms Program Manager, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Andy, Andy, right? Not Andrew? Yep, and go with Andy. Andy, go with that. Andy if, if all the farmers in Iowa came to you right now and they said, hey, we want you to enforce one thing. So not the government. It's the actual farmers say, we want you to tell us to do one thing on our farms differently. What would you tell them to do? Wow, this is like a monkey with a machine gun. I told you, we just jumped right in, man. Yeah, uh, man. So Kent's not here to temper me. (laughs) I would say let's plant 10% of all row crop fields to prairie. Wow. We want to maximize these benefits. That's sort of the idea of prairie strips, the program we work with. Let's scale it up to a real scale. And then obviously targeting those sort of, especially the floodplain. That's an obvious one. You see a lot of areas that probably shouldn't be farmed. Yeah. These top of hillsides, that sort of thing. And obviously about, watersheds. What about farmers who like 50% of their farm ground is in floodplain, right? So now you're not just taking 10% of their ground. You're taking 50% of their ground, but it might be 10% as a whole. That's a great question. I mean, it's going to be uneven. Any sort of idea you have that's going to have the the scale that you want to have if, if your goal is to Reduce water, you know, the yeah. issues with water quality, that sort of thing. I mean, in this scenario, the farmers came to me, so. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> they can figure that's out how true. to dole that out and start Do you know who Chris Jones is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. man, really fascinating guy. We were interviewing him last month or a couple months ago, something like that. And uh, he was uh, um, talking about, he's like, look, we've tried so many times to wave a carrot around. He's like, we just need a stick. And like Minnesota has their uh, prairie strip around uh, um, water streams uh, laws. And, and he says that's kind of a no brainer. But it, I always I have this internal struggle because I'm I'm all for uh, cleaner resources for people around us. Um, I'm not for more government control normally, but uh, we always joke the two worst forms of healthcare are private and uh, government. And those are your only two options. I feel like that can, you know, you run into a similar situation no matter what's being decided. But man, why do you, why are prairie strips and, and putting prairie on farms? So water quality, what, what else would you expect to see change if that happened? Well, certainly there'd be more habitat, right? I think really, You know, you can talk about sort of these ecosystem services, the water quality, the carbon sequestration. There's all these things that Plant Prairie can do. But at the end of the day, there's just not enough. Um, And it's not just, you know, we plowed up the prairies in the 1850s and it was gone. I talked to people and they reminisce about the 1970s. Like, oh, we had this area where there's flowers on the farm. And that's Mm -hmm. been, you know, it's a more recent sort of degradation of our environment than I think is often credited for. And it's, it's really just bringing back the minimum in a lot of ways. And obviously 10% probably be, I mean, I, I would love to see 50%, but that's all, you know, personal. That's not a professional sort of even sane idea, right? Yeah. But it's bringing back um, 
prairie in a semblance of an ecosystem is really what we should be shooting for. And it's not just raw, let's go plant prairie. It's also doing a better job on the acres we already have. And I think that's part of my job too. It's not selling people to go plant half their farm to it. It's more, well, you're going to try it in a small spot. Let's do it well rather Mm -hmm. than this massive scale. So what, what do you do? Prairie on farms at the Tallgrass Prairie Center. That's a weird, weird title. Yeah. Well, in a nutshell, I help people plant prairie on their farm. Uh, In a more broader sense, one thing we do, we have these research uh, and restoration sites, uh, demonstration sites, basically, uh, that are mostly prairie prairie strips, like I mentioned, where we typically have helped plant it, design the seed mix, and then we go do monitoring and do some type of experiment on it. Um, one ongoing one is kind of looking at graminoids composition. So some of the strips have 50% grass in them. Some have 60, just trying to find, um, you know, the, what, uh, you know, compared to Forbes, what's the right amount of grasses to grow. And also how diverse should those grasses look? Cause we talk about grasses kind of a single thing sometimes, but there's a lot of different native grasses that you yeah. can go out and plant and, um, Especially in native plantings, you'll see like big blue stem can take over over time. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you plant a more diverse set of grasses to keep that from happening? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing my program does uh, disseminate those research primarily through field days. I think everyone's pretty familiar with what those look like. Uh, we have technical guides. We have these series of case studies. Um, they're kind of the play by play on how to plant prairie. Um, and really, the idea behind those is you can know nothing about prairie or you can know a decent amount and they should be useful. Okay. So Um, walk me through those case studies that you guys are doing right now. What are you, what are you guys studying specifically about prairie on the farms? Well, the case studies are less about the research and they're more about, um, here's how to buy the seed. Here's how this farm bought the seed. Um, here's how to plant it. Um, here's some things to avoid while you're doing it. And specifically we worked with some, farm managers um they're dealing a lot with absentee landowners yeah a lot of the people on land in iowa are absentee um whether that means they live in california or they live in cedar falls and they farm in the next county over um there's a lot of those sorts of people out there who just need an idea of how it works and the step-by-step guide to it how to interact with the um, fsa or something yeah I, there's, you wouldn't believe how many times a farmer comes up to me and, and says, Oh, I thought about doing CRP, but then NRCS was saying this, this, and this, and I just didn't want to hassle with it. And it's not as much work as you think it is up front, but think about a food that you've like never cooked before. Um, it takes you so much longer to cook it the first, second, third time when you're having to look at the instructions, you're cutting things slowly, as opposed to, you know, you make a meal, uh, you know, a hundred times. So you work at a restaurant and make that meal a hundred times. You're going to be real quick at it. Same for you. And for us with CRP and other programs with prayer on the farm, we can just, we don't even think about, it. we just walk through the steps, call in the NRCS, know exactly what to ask for. You know, we're talking about track numbers and CP 25s and 10 thirties versus 2020s, you know, and, and, uh, but then I have to remind myself, the farmer thinks about those things once every 10 years, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and a lot of times someone walks them through it. So the last time they did it, they weren't doing it that in depth. And, and that actually is a big part of where we find we can add value to people's lives is, Hey, I'll call the NRCS. I'll get everything approved. You just tell me what you want in your field. 
Um, and it's always more exciting for someone to say, I want lots of flowers and I want, you know, pheasants and butterflies. And as opposed to like, I just want my payment. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get you your payment. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting. So you help farmers basically walk through the headache. Yep, exactly. Um, walk through part of the headache and, you know, also I mentioned not just a farmer focus, but more of the landowner type of focus too. Really work with anybody who's making decisions on agricultural landscapes, essentially. Mm. Um, just trying to broaden that because it's really wide and diverse audience, right? And so kind of um, approaching that from a less of a, you know, not less of a farmer standpoint. We still work with farmers, obviously, but yeah, kind of, you know, dealing with the reality of who owns farmland mm-hmm. is part of it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, wild how... Uh, not just like how many people own land that aren't there. I mean, that's whatever. It's watching how much it's changed in the last 30 years, right? You had the crash in the 80s, which was a big deal. Then the dot-com crash, I heard, actually affected it quite a bit. And then you had some people still hanging on, but then you had the ethanol boom. So uh, bigger farmers are like, well, we can get even bigger right now. You know, we've got a lot all this corn. We can just go and buy up more land. Or, or you know, people are looking for where they can dump $6 million dollars and they live out of state or someone just wants really good deer hunting ground and, and they have the money to buy 240 acres in Southern Iowa. And so it's all over the place. And we're not here to, you know, say that you can only own up to a certain amount of acres, but, uh, it does, uh, monopolizing a power is always, uh, uh, interesting, um, challenge. I'm going to change gears. I'm very curious. Is Prairie going to plug my tiles? (laughs) No. Uh, and so, just a, a little more to that. So that's a common question we get, and I'm sure you get it a fair often too. This uh, will prairie plug my tiles question, and it makes a lot of sense, right? We at the center we grow these uh, root specimens that are you know ten feet long and really impressive. And you look at that and you're like, well, my tiles five feet deep. Isn't that going to plug it? So we went out and bought a sewer camera that we use to do tile line investigations, um, and generally um, go look under prairie. There's some roots in there, but they're not causing a bunch of problems. And I think one thing that people often don't realize is that there's corn roots and bean roots in your tile um, for a lot of the year, too. So root infiltration in tiles, not, it's not just prairie doing yeah. it, right? Um, but the thing, here's the other thing, though, right? A prairie plants itself, the big blue stem, the compass plant, they're not going to cause problems if your uh, tile system's working properly. Um but you go and plant prairie and everyone's seen drive around the section. There's a CRP that's five years old and they haven't mowed it or burned it. And I'm not saying that's super common, but you can definitely go out and find it. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of trees in there. And so if you're not managing the prairie to be a prairie, um, you could have problems with trees and uh, just other, other woody vegetation can cause issues. And that's where we found mm. um, problems. Man. So the woody vegetation and, and that is kind of an issue with, with prairie. I asked someone once who, who's uh, fairly knowledgeable about prairie what would happen if, uh, if uh, people just left Iowa, right? And they were like, well, it'd be cool to say that prairie would end up taking over because Big Blue Stem would have a really good chance. But the problem is trees. You don't have your bison and your um, fire to uh, be managing your tree population. And so I guess Iowa would just be a forest 
Um, but uh, so in, in CRPs where they get left for 10 years and we got birds pooping out these tree seeds and, you know, there's some, some fields we tell them like, Hey, we will not replant this CRP planting because yeah, they've kind of mowed off the trees, but they're still sticking two inches out of the ground. They're going to puncture tire. They're going to catch our, uh, our uh, cedar, you know, and, and we've had some stuff really get jacked up from it. But, uh, do you do any of that work? Do you end up going out and seeding or? For any of the farmers so on some of those research uh and demonstration sites we have done some seeding um most of the time those agreements the management is done by um the landowner or you know um oftentimes they aren't actually the ones farming it um they'll be in like a, a crop share agreement so that'll fall under uh, a little extra work for their um farm operator hmm. type of thing yeah. yeah. What kind of farmers do you find are reaching out to you guys saying, Hey, I want to do something and I want to do it well, like with Prairie. You know, it's, there's a diverse array and I'll, I'll use specifics here cause it'll make more sense. So one person, he, I think he's actually just going to start retiring. We've got about 500 acres down in Buchanan County and he's just super interested in more of those benefits of prairie that can help the field too. So I'll go down and talk to him. He's talking about bugs. Like these bugs are helping my beans grow better. Right. Mm. So that's a habitat thing. It's not just those charismatic um, species using mm-hmm. prairie strips. It's, it's the insects and stuff. Um, another example, uh, somebody's never farmed. Um, they own land um, in Blackout County, but they live in Cedar Falls and their cousin farms, and they were really interested. Um, another example, absentee landowner, um, they live in uh, Portland, Maine, and so they have a uh, farm manager, helps wow. manage the farm, and then they have a farm operator who um, does the farming for them, and he's a larger operator. So, Man, and, and they reached out and said, hey, I just want some, I want some prairie on my land. They just wanted habitat to hunt or what? They just cared about the environment. Uh, so for this one over in Grundy County with the uh, landowner out of state, their sons read about prairie strips in the New York Times in about 2015. Huh? And they're like, "Wow, this this sounds good." And they're looking for those sort of new scientific uh, research and kind of the more cutting edge of on farm conservation. Um, that farm is, you know, shifted from. You know, it used to have uh, livestock on it, and they shifted away from that. Yep. It's, it's sort of part of this almost generational shift of they value the income from the farm still. They still need the income, right? It's not like it's some hobby farm yeah. um, type of thing. They really care about the soil quality and some of those more external things. Um, and then the prairie strips just work well with, we're going to keep farming this. We're going to make money. We're not turning it into just a you know entire CRP field. It's like 90 CSR type of field. So it's very, very high quality. Um, And so there's infield strips and field borders. One of the prairie strips is over old railroad bed. So it wasn't quite the best farm ground. So it's kind of, and then, you know, we look at these old aerial maps from the 1930s and a fair bit of it was in pasture or they're rotating it, right? Mm -hmm. So we're not just restoring prairie because Iowa used to be prairie, you know, 200 years ago. Restoring prairie to serve sort of in lieu of like crop rotations or something hmm. areas we kept in pasture. Um, do you think 
because we kind of glorify what Prairie used to be. Do you think Prairie had like tuned itself in really well at that point? Or do you think it was still in its infancy? Because Prairie's not that old. It's just like 10,000 years old. Um, what do you, do you feel like it was moving towards something totally different? No, I don't. And I'm not a, you know, a scientist about this stuff, but really talk about Prairie as it was when European Americans, you know, conquered it, settled it, whatever Mm -hmm. word you want to use to describe that. Um, it was, you know, the environment itself, lightning causing fires, burning the Prairie keeps the trees away. Right. It's also cultural indigenous, uh, humans, you know, Indians, native Americans were lighting fires too, to make Mm -hmm. it Prairie. So as much as Prairie is sort of what the landscape was naturally, it was also, you know, human decisions to keep it that way. Um, Mm. in a lot of regards. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I, I've been thinking about that for a long time because they just like, we do, we do glorify them. And, and I think that they had, they were obviously way better for their surrounding ecosystem and it worked more as a partnership than it does today. But, uh, I'm just so, I'm just curious, like, was it reaching its peak? Was it reaching its high level? And I know that, you know, evolution kind of demands that there isn't a peak, uh, but it, it, it pulls on some strings because it makes you wonder like, oh, what were we, are we trying to recreate something that isn't actually optimal? Not obviously prairie is better than no prairie. What I'm saying is, could there be an ab- uh, adaptation to prairie that uh, could be better than it was, you know, 300 years ago? Uh, I think we first need to figure out how to establish prairie at all, you know, with 50 species, let alone, you know, 250 species. But yeah, that picks my brain. Something else I'm curious if you would know about, and I didn't pick your brain on this ahead of time, but uh, um, in-ground uh, insects or like worms and stuff like that with how they're just basically getting demolished at this point and uh, um, specifically worms in farm soil. Are you seeing difference when prairie gets established with attracting uh, such things, such slimy, gross, wonderful things? I, I, we haven't done any research on that. We don't study, um, insects really here at the center. Who should I, whose brain should I pick? Uh, with worms or with insects with in worms. general? I want to know about them worms. I'm, I mean, insects. Are I am there. not sure. I'm sure there's somebody at Iowa state. Um, that knows could, about worms. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> You're like, and Iowa state, they look yeah. like they study worms over there. Well, they, I'm sure they have somebody looking at, looking at that. I'm not sure. Um, we, we've done studies on like monarchs in the prairie, but not. Yeah. That's really it. Yeah. What about insects? Who should I, whose brain should I pick? Uh, well, Dr. I Wen here at the university, she's an insectologist or I'm sure I'm saying her title wrong, but, uh, she's very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about, um, especially the pollinator type of stuff. She's yeah. done studies specifically on CP 25 and CP 42. Really? So and how it affects. Very, yeah. in doing Man. counts and that sort of thing. So. That's really interesting crazy. stuff. Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't realize like prairies were pretty hostile. You know, they were like not enjoyable places for the settlers. Um, getting eaten alive by bugs. I mean, we get a few mosquito bites and we're like, oh my goodness, you know, that's such a hard night, you know. But uh, they would literally just like uh, there are accounts of them just like yelling and screaming in pain at night from getting bit or. Oh, you know, you make one wrong step on some hive and mm-hmm. yeah, not, not an exciting time. And, and, uh, we've just 
basically demolished the insect problem around. Yeah. I I say problem uh, tongue in cheek because you know it's basically destroying our pollinators, but yeah, and mammals and reptiles. I mean, oh, you yeah. can read crazy stories about prairie rattlesnakes, just pits of them, and man, just murder them. Oh my, that's goodness. policy, or you know. Last elk are exterminated with mm-hmm. frying pans and knives from the house, right? That's a, um, yeah. Yeah, our Iowa's relationship with the environment is one of subjugation, right? Mm-hmm. Fundamentally. Um, and that, you know, that legacy continues today. Obviously, I think we're doing a little better in a lot of regards Yeah. Um, compared to that, you know, massive transition into the 20th century. But yeah. Well, I was, I, we were talking with, um, uh, one of the co-founders of Iowa Cover Crop, and we asked him who are the kinds of people going in and putting in cover crop, and he said it's either the really old farmers uh, who are established, their whole mortgage is paid off, um, they're not worried about money, they've made the money they need to, and they've got all their equipment, or brand new farmers, you know, 28, 30-year-old kids, basically, that are just getting into it and saying, maybe we need some change, and and he said, you know, it's it's the middle aged ones, and and he he defended them. He said, you know, they they're the ones with the biggest mortgage right now. They've paid the highest price for farms that anyone's ever paid, um, and they they know what's working, right? They know that their margins are paying off their mortgage, so they're going to stick with it. And they're they're basically scared. You know, you can make one misstep and be one hundred fifty thousand dollars short on your mortgage that year, and that's a big deal, you know. Uh, and because uh, one hundred fifty thousand dollars, I mean, that's like six billion acres of corn margin. So, which is mostly a joke saying that we only make like 50 cents an acre on corn. Um, follow the money people. Um, but yeah. So when you're working out with the prairie, what's your favorite thing to do or study? Favorite thing to do in prairie. Uh, you know, love walking my dog in the prairie and his favorite thing to do is pee on every single plant that's out there. (laughs) So I guess by way of connection, that's not your favorite thing. Yeah, as well. I don't know. Maybe it is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. And you know, I, I really enjoy seeing different animals out there. Um, mm. I know that's kind of a dumb answer, but, and sort of, you know, I'm a, I'm a historian by training or public historian by yeah, training, not a biologist. So, you know, I like to be, weird and just imagine you know sit in some prairie and it looks good and just imagine what it could look like if there was more of it right sort of that you know and it's a lot of it's invented like we don't really know exactly what it looked like we can't recreate it even though we call it prairie restorations right Mm -hmm. um but and here's a great example out at that previous prairie strip i was mentioning there's about 40 acres out there in prairie um which is fantastic and it had thunderstormed on a July day, and it had been really hot, but that morning was nice and cool. There was still some fog, basically. Walking out there, doing um, weed surveys, so counting the can of thistle, um, wow. which which is out there. And I don't want to be – I probably sound a little too positive about prairie. There's plenty of management issues and whatnot we could get into. But walking out there and – in the middle of this prairie strip, and there's a wooded area on one end of the farm. We're walking up and hear a rustling, and three coyotes, or coyotes, depending on if you shoot them or not, uh, <laughs> hop out of the prairie strip and bolt as fast as they can. They turn around and look at us real quick, and they're like, ah, oh, they just walk off, right? Just a really special hmm. um, 
thing to see, and it's not something you see in a row crowd field all that often, yeah. right? You might see a coyote crossing the road or in the ditch or something, but when we're talking on an actively farmed field, there's not a lot of interactions with wildlife in that mm. regard, right? Yeah. So that's part of it. It's, you know, humans and nature wholly interconnected, no matter how separated we make them physically on the landscape. Even if yeah. you can't run into it, we're still in a relationship with the environment. So part of it's just kind of bringing that back face-to-face, right? These yeah. sort of borderlands in a way, if you want to think of it like that. But You ever you know. seen a badger out in a prairie restoration? I haven't, but I've seen some suspicious holes in them. Yeah. Yeah, nice oh, big yeah. holes. Got to love those. The, uh, I've only actually seen a badger in Iowa twice, and both of them were this summer. Uh, I'd never seen personally laid eyes on a badger. Dad has seen a couple of them on the farm over like three decades. Uh, he saw one he was hoeing with his dog at the time, Sheba. I wasn't even around yet. Uh, he was hoeing out in the fields, and he saw a badger. And uh, he picked up Sheba, just ran. Yeah. You know, you don't mess with them badgers. But uh, um, there was another really rare thing that, uh, oh, we had a totally albino pheasant oh. on our farm for a couple of years in like 2018, 2019-ish era. Um, and that was really cool. Because it wasn't like, I, I looked it up. There's like some kind of looking albino, but this was like true, pure, white, wild looking thing yeah wow crazy and it hung out on our farm for and you knew it was there for a few years because you could see it for at least a couple winters and yeah that was fascinating i assume you guys get quite a bit of pheasant oh yeah yeah that same day we found some pheasant eggs a couple baby ones man uh yeah oh always actually they scare the crap out of me you know pheasants well yeah walking in there's a you know just like oh my god (laughs) (sighs) you gotta catch your breath for a second it's like oh yeah, there's pheasants in here. That's for sure. <laughs> I almost got killed by a bird. <laughs> <laughs> the well, we were just talking to uh, Jack Bensink, who founded a a pheasant farm and a hunting mm-hmm. preserve, and he said they'll like fly by you and they'll scrape up your face and your arms. Wow! Um, if that's within the like enclosed space, obviously, if mm-hmm. they if they can run from you, they're gonna run from you. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I the I know in um, by Eddyville. They've got that sand prairie where it's got like that really rare turtle. Um, mm-hmm. It's like a basically endangered turtle that they've got living in there somewhere. Um, but is there anything else kind of crazy animal wise you see out here? Uh, well, I haven't seen it in a prairie strip, but uh, here at the center we have um, plant production plots, right? And so there's been rusty patch bumblebees out here. That really? Been a couple times. Which is... That was like the whole big thing with. Uh, the Belbull Prairie mm-hmm. was the Rusty Patch Bumblebee. That's crazy. Yeah, R.I.P. Belbull Prairie. Man, um, yeah, that was sad. Yeah, I'd... talking about our complicated relationship with the landscape, we yeah. continue to plow under these remnants that are wholly irreplaceable. Oh which, yeah, which is a shame. Yeah, there's no you you could you could plant a prairie. And leave it for a hundred years, it wouldn't be the same as these remnants. You, you know? could try and plant prairie by hand, and you couldn't yeah. recreate it. Oh, like, yeah. That's the level which it's, it's so impossible. What's up? So, state recommended probably heavily because you guys recommended once upon a time forty seeds a square foot. But you look in a square foot of prairie, and so we plant forty seeds a square foot, and only like six plants. You know, maybe maybe like three or four. Um, what? 
where's the rest of my seed going, Andy? <laughs> this is a question for my colleague, Dr. Justin Meissen. I, okay. That's his, his area of expertise. Um, but, you know, there's seed predation. Um, not every single piece of seed is going to germinate when you plant it, right? Mm-hmm. All those all those sorts of things are fighting against each other. Man. Um, but, yeah. That'd be... I just, yeah, it it, it uh, boggles my brain. Not, I mean, because I believe that the study was there that shows that 40 seed square foot has good... Uh, has a good turnout. Um, yeah. You know, the other day I sold a mix. I was 180 seeds a square foot. And I was trying to tell them like, I think this is too much. And it was like, a it was like a middleman of a middleman. And, uh-huh. and they were like, I know that's what we were saying. And we think it's way too much. And I, cause at first I was like, is this around like a dam? You know, is, is, are you really trying to heavily seed something? They're like, Nope, it's just someone's field. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> like 60 to me is like a max. Yeah. Um, but 100 yeah wild i uh wondered who i was like who is paying for this you yeah know? i <laughs> work with them that'd be fun yeah yeah Eight, yeah 1800 2000 bucks an acre for yeah. every acre we sell wow. oh my goodness we'd be we'd be happy campers that's uh right now it's kind of sad because crp's like dead mm-hmm. um just because waiting for the new farm bill and like hoping that the new farm bill will say something good, you know. You have any indication of what's coming out in the farm bill? Oh my gosh, uh, no. I, you know, you can look, kind of look at the farm lobby groups to maybe get a sense of what big changes may or may not be coming. I think most have indicated that pretty much, you know, somebody like the farm bureau is usually fighting for lower acreage cap lower that cap but Mm -hmm. seems to be pretty status quo for crp itself um some of those other programs csp yeah equip there's definitely a lot more money yeah but not through the farm bill so Mm. i mean we'll see if they get yeah clipped or i do wonder especially with like an election year coming up what what they're going to try and do if uh because biden talks about being more green i would say he's taking steps towards being more green but uh, I wonder if he's even willing to touch the farm bill, you know, cause it's such a, it's one of the last like bipartisan bills yep. and, uh, yeah, but I don't know. It, it's also kind of like, I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast, but it's just like kind of sad how many livelihoods are fully dependent on the government's mm-hmm. bills. You know, I don't think, I don't think that's like how it was supposed to be, uh, when it was originally designed. So, but, uh, cause you look at big companies, um, like Manats. I'm not throwing under the bus. They've mm-hmm. done some work around us and they always do good work. Uh, they're like a big road construction company for anyone who doesn't know. And they do huge contracts around the Midwest. Well, if it wasn't for giant government road contracts, they'd be like a small cement company, you know, that mm-hmm. does like foundations of buildings and driveways and, you know, small roads. But, uh, but I do think publicly owned roads is better than privately owned tariffed roads. You know, or, you know, being able to choose who goes on and off them. And dude, you want to hear a crazy story? I, uh, trying to think of how much of this story I should tell. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to just go for it. I'm sorry, Ken. You'll have to listen to this and see if it's, (laughs) if I need to edit it out. Um, I was, my wife and I bought a building Mm -hmm. and, uh, we had, um, a subcontracted crew working on a specific thing in the building that was very undesirable. I'll say it like that. So I like the guy who owns the company, but, uh, um, I go to pay him. He's on site. And when I, when I go on site, he's, (laughs) he's on the phone 
And I was like, and then he gets off the phone. He's obviously agitated. I was like, oh, you need anything else from me? He's like, well, two of my guys just got pulled over, and I guess one of them's going to jail. Um, and uh, it's the kind of work that's hard to find workers to mm-hmm. do totally. because it's just crappy work. And I was like, oh, shoot. He's like, yeah, could you drive me over to that company vehicle so I could go get it? It's like on the side of the road. So I pull up, and there's not like a cop car in a car. There's like a bunch of cop cars, a canine unit. And so I pull in front. And one thing about, we live in a small town. I've got a big old green bird on the side of my truck. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows where I live. <laughs> and when they meet me and I say, oh, yeah, that's my truck. They're like, oh, yeah, I have seen you all right, you know. And so I pull in front of this car. And I'm thinking this guy's going to get out, blah, blah, blah. Well, then we're like, well, we probably shouldn't just, like, get up and start walking towards those cops. One cop finally comes around to uh, the passenger side door, says, oh, yeah, like, it's going to be a little while. we got to process stuff. But please don't go anywhere we need you here to fill out paperwork mm. yada yada well we end up sitting there for 30 minutes and i'm pretty sure every single friend that i have in that small town saw my vehicle there <laughs> with all those, over. with those dogs oh, no. hanging out and what had happened i guess is um these guys that work for the guy got pulled over both of them's license was barred and the guy didn't know that you know he just was employing some guys yep. their license was barred okay whatever uh their car smells a little bit like weed okay whatever well they bring in the canine unit and there's meth oh. <laughs> the guys have oh, meth boy. on them and uh it's like like that sucks but uh one of the guys who got arrested was like i don't need a started spewing uh, like I don't need a license to drive. Like this yeah, is a right, yeah. you know. Which technically it's not. It's a no. No, it's privilege. Yep. But uh, uh, the police officer came over to us. He's like, "Hey, is your employee over there? Is he like a constitutionalist? Does he like <laughs> live in the backwoods?" He's like, "I don't think so." He's got the Clive and Bundy pocket constitution yeah. on him. <laughs> yeah. That sort of thing. He's just like preaching from the roadside, whatever he can. Oh man, that was totally a tangent. Wow. But Andy, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it back over to you because earlier I'd asked, what do you want to talk about? I asked you before we got on the podcast and I want to, I want to hear from you. What what do you want to tell the peoples? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier, but you know, sort of this idea that, Hey, we need more prairie on the landscape, but also the idea that we can do it better. Right. Um, Hmm. I think part of, and this is actually more of a question for you, sort of the marketing of Prairie. Mm -hmm. Because often we talk about it, and and this is also linked to the Farm Bill and the government talk, is we talk about how great Prairie is and all this, and then sort of shoot ourselves in the foot, and they're like, and then you can get a bunch of money to do it, right? You don't sell anything else that way. Yeah, You don't go, a seed dealer doesn't go to a farmer and say, oh, this is, you know, it's cheaper because I have some government grant to give it to you. Right. Yeah. Um, same with car dealerships, right? This is the best and greatest because it's got a big motor, whatever. I mean, these trucks are huge these days, but anyways, hmm. um, you know, we, these plants, this prairie deserves, in my opinion, deserves to be restored at some semblance of a landscape level that we're not at. Um, these, these plants have a right to live in some ways. And that's, you know, the remnants, but also sort of that genetic heritage that that's what we're doing in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, I'm kind of off track now, but. Uh, that's all right. You were saying something about marketing or, or talking about people only caring yeah, about money. Basically just, you know, 
get to getting to a place where we value prairie enough where you know you want to spend a decent amount of money on it right mm-hmm. sometimes you go out it's a race to the bottom i just want some cover or even people who really want the habitat you know you don't want to spend more than 200 whatever acre, dollars an acre and it's not all about money like you go spend thousand dollars an acre doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a lot better looking right yeah um you got to do it all right but Sort of just having more, giving Prairie more cultural cachet. So A, people are aware it's a thing. And then we're going to go and we're going to do it better than we are. Hmm. Um, Prairie isn't just a bunch of milkweeds. It's not just for monarchs to eat. It's not just for pheasants to live in. You know, it's for all of those things, right? Um, We're planting prairie for everybody. We're planting prairie for people. We're planting prairie for the monarchs, coyotes, Mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. Even the things we don't necessarily want. Um, yeah. Those come too. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. It, it's hard because when you, when you take away the money aspect, you're, you're poking at a very, very deep thing yep. that says, Hey, we need you to believe that there's more to life than money and comfort. Mm-hmm. That's tough, man. That's a really tough thing, especially in, in marketing where the marketing of the last hundred years has been spent. Like we, we are programmed at this point to look for the comfortable or money-making thing and not the fulfilling thing. And I mean, like good luck feeling fulfilled and having nothing to do with nature. Like yeah. good luck. I'm not saying you have to be outside all the time, but you, it, it's, it's basically a necessity be, being outside away from concrete mm-hmm. at times in your life. You got to have it. Um, money just doesn't do that for you. And then on the flip side, not only is money insufficient for fulfilling your desires, it is actually uh, not evil, but it can work towards a very um, uh, anti-satisfying lifestyle. Uh, mo money, mo problems, as right. uh, our good friends like to say. But but so so you've got this you've got this group where, where or you've got this carrot where we've told people, hey, if you plant prairie, like you'll get money for it, and that's not that's not a bad carrot, but no, um, not at all. but a better carrot would be, uh, uh, Hey, if you plant this prairie, like there will be more sustainable living for you and all your neighbors in the, in the region and humanity as a whole. And, and all of the plants and the animals, the flora and the fauna, all of the insects and the, and the bacteria and, and all those things. Uh, the, the, but that carrot doesn't taste good to anybody for some reason, right? Not, not nobody, tons of people. It tastes great, but there's so many people like, what, what does that have to do? They'll figure it out. You know, they'll, they'll get it on their own. And I was actually just thinking about this on the way up. I had this uh, friend, good friend from high school. It was Lena. And she was a foreign exchange student from Denmark. And she taught me something really important. She would always talk about how she could help her society around her. It blew my mind. Nobody thinks like that here. I do think... You know, people on a very small scale think about like how they can help their community. There's volunteering, there's being involved in their kids' stuff in schools. Uh, you know what I mean? They're showing up at city council meetings, especially when you start getting in those much smaller communities. Uh, but the uh, but the aspect of like, man, you know, I'm really helping people in Mississippi or that make their lifestyle in the Gulf of Mexico by planting this prairie around. There's not very much of that, and part of it I think is they're not connected to those people they're not connect they're not seeing that result and and tabitha panis you know mm-hmm. tabitha, yep. um 
we always ask like, what's one thing you would change if you could. And she said that everyone who lives in the Midwest could go out and experience Prairie because when you experience something and you have an experience and it touches you at an, at a ethos level, um, then you have some sort of connection with it. And when you're, when you have a connection with something, you're much less likely to just get rid of it, ignore it, do a crappy job about it. Um, so sorry, I went on that tirade, but yeah, I think that holds the key is, um, is convincing people that there's a carrot besides money and that it's a really, really good one. Absolutely. And that point of like, you just have to get out and experience it to even start to appreciate it. Right. And, uh, you know, I didn't learn the tall grass prairie was even a thing until college, you know, had to pick Mm -hmm. up a book, um, a book recommended by somebody who grew up in California and, uh, Nevada. So, wow. Where did you go to college? I went to undergrad here at the university of Northern Iowa. Okay. And I have a master's from Colorado state university. Wow. Is that in, in person you went got there or was it online? In person. Yep. 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 Where? Why you're from Iowa? Why did you haul all the way over to Colorado? Did they have a program you wanted, or they? Yeah, they have a. So their program is more focused on something called cultural resource management. So think is sort of uh, you know historic places um, like what's it Mesa Verde in Colorado. Hmm. It's an ancient um, uh, cliff dweller city, basically. So sort of that aspect of history. I'm very interested in the more environmental stuff, which. Obviously, I'm not working yeah. with prairie restoration, but yeah. How'd uh, you make that jump? Because your your study is your your like trainings in history. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, natural history is history, right? So wow. our relationship with the environment is fundamental to understanding anything about history, right? Um, That's really good. Let me just write that down. Natural history is history, <laughs> right? <laughs> Man, so. But how'd you get connected here at Tallgrass Prairie Center? I mean, this is like a, they're very, there's a lot of power and authority here, especially in the Tallgrass Prairie world, but it's a small place. There's not a lot of you guys that work here. Right. So I graduated with my master's in the beautiful time of the spring of 2020. Wow. Where the job market was um, depressing, (laughs) especially when, you know, it's a liberal arts master's. It's not an engineering degree. Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah. All, you know, all those jokes associated with those types of degrees. I get it. Um, so I took an AmeriCorps position here at the center um, mm. just as like a, was my title? Communications associate. So, and then they had the previous Prairie and Farms manager leave. And for some reason, I conned them into thinking I'm decent at what I do. So that's how <laughs> I ended up getting this gig Yeah. Um, with kind of the, you know, non-botany, non-restoration ecology background. I'm just imagining, um, what's that movie? Catch me if you can with Leonardo DiCaprio where he's running and he's like pretending to be a doctor and he just watched a bunch of doctor TV shows. Just imagine you watching like hours and hours and hours, of little house on the prairie <laughs> just showing up. be like, Oh yeah, I'm an expert in these things. Yeah, um, that's how I feel. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> what's what is the, uh, what is the most inequipped you felt at this job or the most overwhelmed, I guess. Hmm. Overwhelmed. Unequipped. Uh, telling you why it's 40 seats per square foot is the rule. Cause I don't know if there is a very like great answer to that, but also like, I don't know. Cause it works. Cause it works. That's why. Uh, super unequipped. Oh man. That's a great question. 
it, it's when I have to talk to actual like scientists and res- restoration people. Yeah. Cause there are aspects of this that like the tile camera stuff, no one else is lugging that thing around and looking at it. So people do want to hear it, but you know, I, I'm not a scientist by any sense of the word. So that's probably yeah. the situations. That's the most. That was the, when I first met Laura Walter and she like only knows scientific names. I'm like, um, <laughs> I just started working here. <laughs> Please give me a break. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. They definitely speak Latin around here. And I, sometimes I just nod and I'm like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Oh yeah. I know. I've picked thing. up on some of them, but yeah. You do. Uh, you know, there's a guy at Millbourne Seeds. You've ever worked with him? Uh, only a little, yeah. Okay. There's a, a guy out there, and he's not, I don't think he's formally trained. He just worked with Prairie so long that he just knows them. Mm. Uh, and I mean, not like the common 30. He knows them all, you mm. know. But, uh, and I find that fascinating because, especially when I'm like, hey, are you interested in, in buying, uh, you know, what was one I asked him recently? Nodding. Not nodding on Yin. Um, oh, t- uh, man, what, what beggar, uh, beggar ticks, mm, nodding okay. beggar ticks. Okay. Um, and, uh, he was like, oh, you mean this, uh, Senua Biden's or something. I was like, ah, Jason, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask you if you know about this specific species there. Let me send you a picture, you know? <laughs> A little over my pay grade, my Bible and counseling degree. A little less Latin, a little more Greek, I suppose. But mm-hmm. and so you applied to work here. You're kind of a communication intern. Mm-hmm. Maybe you got coffee for people, <laughs> and yeah. then uh, jumped onto the uh, farms program, which I assume is heavily communication because you were trying to translate the importance of prairie to farmers who, not that there's no overlap, but you know traditionally it's not a perfect Venn diagram overlap. Yeah, um, absolutely. What, what's the hardest part of that? Ooh. I would say the hardest part of that is, well, there's two parts. There's two extremes to sort of the communication part. It's the, um, you know, stereotypical f- kind of farmer who rents a bunch of land and they have, they have no time to work with prairie, which I get. Um, and then there's the other extreme. It's the prairie purists. And hmm. so, you know, the prairie strips and prairie on farms is not, you know, really a prairie purist area in a lot of ways, hmm. um, especially with things like using herbicide. You have a lot of people who are like, I have um, an old pasture on they inherited or whatever, and I want to convert it to prairie. And I don't want to use any herbicide, and I don't want to till it. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to have, it's going to continue to be grass probably. <laughs> some of these, some of these questions are just, you know, and people don't want to hear the answer sometimes, but yeah. Um, so it's kind of those, you know, balancing those kind of living in the middle there. Right. Yeah. Is we're trying to do really good restoration stuff. Um, but it's also on these real existing fields Yeah. and there's reality there. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't think we're creating biodiversity sinks and just luring monarchs to kill them and, spike traps or whatever. Um, but there is reality where there is spray drift. You go out to a spray strip and you yeah. sprayed canthus out, the edges does have impact to those forbs. And mm-hmm. so there is sort of that. It's just, yeah. you know, it's that physical reality of. And know. Roundup, Roundup's like a wild thing because 
I actually tell people I'm for Roundup. I'm just not for spraying the whole state of Iowa with Roundup twice a year. You know what I mean? Like I feel like we could do a little a little better, you know. And plus, I've seen the high schoolers these days, myself included. I could have used a little extra bean walking when I was in high school. Same. You know? A little a little more discipline in my life, but uh, uh, so see that is that is fascinating where you're talking about the the compromise and it's tough because and we talk about this our our logo is pheasant mm-hmm. and we understand we're not going back to those prairies that were here it just ain't gonna happen right. uh we can get close but we need some sort of high sustainable hybrid um which the pheasant represents well because it mm-hmm. is not native here but Absolutely. it worked out well and and uh acclimated correctly but yeah what I had something I really wanted to ask you. Oh, those, those that farm that we visited, mm-hmm. uh, that we did that field trip on. What was the name of that? Oh, Irvin Prairie. Irvin Prairie. Tell mm-hmm. us, tell us about that because that is was really cool looking prairie. Right, and I can give you a little of the lowdown, but basically, um, I had a landowner who um, her husband had passed away, and they were very interested in prairie. Um, at least he was before that, and so in his memory, she decided to donate. Um, originally it was about 80 acres in his name memory. And then recently another 220. So wow. it'll end up being about 200, 300 acres of this beautiful restored prairie. That's, you know, sort of this living classroom. And then we can also do ask research, research questions and that sort of thing Yeah, down there. And it's really, really unique and special. And, you know, and on the one hand, you talk about we're doing, you know, it's a high level type of restoration. Mm-hmm. And you look at it and it's hard to imagine it as like a CR in as a CRP practice planting. But that's kind of the heart behind it is this is closer to what we should be doing everywhere. Yeah. Rather than um, what we are doing in a lot of ways. Because, you know, cost per acre, $500, $600. Not insane. It's not $1,200 an acre sort of restoration either so mm-hmm. um yeah it's just it's a really special place um it's down by close to dysert iowa um, is it open to the public at all yep it's open to the public uh 24 7 well not 24 7 <laughs> uh sunrise to sunset seven days a week um go out there explore the trails yeah sort of it's pretty cool and they're ni- nice mode trails so you can experience in the prairie without having the uh hostility we talked about earlier what and we were out there. You had you had um, planted in different patches. You know what was crazy was that dormant seeding yep. versus the not dormant seeding. They were the dormant seeding was done last year in twenty twenty two. The dormant seeding was twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one was winter of twenty or like yep. like it was November twenty twenty one. And then the other part was December or was sorry spring. May twenty twenty two. Yes. Yeah. So. People, you got to be out there to, to see the difference. But the dormant seeding looked like a prairie, mm-hmm. a little thinner than the stuff that had been planted years before, but looked like a, a pretty decent prairie, tons of flowers. And the other one was like bare dirt with a, a few like black-eyed Susan that had made it through, yep. basically, was yep. the extent of it. And um, like the difference was staggering. Now, I understand. So what dad says is that dormant seedings are better for the seed. Your mm-hmm. problem is if you have existing CRP or brome that you're trying to get out, you really need to spray in the fall and in the spring. Have you ever sprayed? Have you ever sprayed in the fall, planted, and then sprayed again in the spring before the warm seasons come up? Uh, I haven't personally. Um, again, Justin 
probably has experience with this. But Man. The, yeah, we're going to be picking his brain next. I haven't decided <laughs> if we're going to post both of these episodes like at the same time or yeah. we'll give them each their own week. I don't know. My bad. But uh, what? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. The, the, you are the guy to talk to because a lot of the people that listen to this are farmers right. or, uh, you know, involved in a farming operation and just looking to do things differently. And mm-hmm. no one was talking about it. So, yeah, it was Kent's idea. He said we should start talking about this stuff. Cool. But yeah. back to kind of your your question Definitely the dormant seeding, like you need, a, I mean, it was planted into bean stubble, right? Yeah. There was no existing, it had been planted the beans that year. And so there was, you know, very little time, no fallow period or anything. Yeah. And then in the dormant one though, it needed to be sprayed because that brome had started to kind of creep in there a little bit. Yeah. So, and that comes back to another reason why CRP, um, like new CRP is such a good opportunity is it's going into these fields that don't have much in the weed bank for the most part. Yeah. Um, That's what, I mean, we use beans to get rid of our weed bank. Yep. Um, And uh, it is interesting when I, when I see prairies that have been planted and then someone adds a tile or like an electrical line or something through it for like three years, you see just sweet clover where it's dug up, but then the sweet clover diminishes. Mm -hmm. Um, What it's just, it gets stirred up and then it, and then the prairie just takes over or what, what happens there? Yeah. I think the prairie's taken over. Probably the sweet clover doesn't have, uh, enough of a population to re repopulate itself is kind of what I've mm. seen. Although you, you know, you can't see cl- sweet clover persisting Yeah, in some situations. There was, um, there's this one guy that's on my road to work and I think he planted it before I was working on the farm, but he did, uh, uh, he has sweet clover out there, and I think Dad told him to mow it. It's like, you need to mow that. You need to mow that. Now it's just all sweet clover, and you can see flowers kind of poking in in between mm-hmm. it. But uh, uh, we had Ebert Honey, uh, Phil Ebert, on our podcast, Legend of a Guy. If you haven't listened to that, you should for sure listen to that. Okay. Uh, the 12, maybe, 15, 16, something like that, uh, episodes in. Mm-hmm. But he says that sweet clover for a while is like all the – the bees have in his area and mm. he can tell the difference on sweet clover honey than other honey with just by tasting it really yeah he said it most other things aren't that distinct but sweet clover is so distinct he can taste the difference and he said since he's dealt with so much honey he's like that's like the only honey i'll eat is uh sweet, wow sweet clover interesting honey. yeah i know and i like hate sweet clover yeah i know <laughs> it's know? like oh no <laughs> yeah yeah you see some of those situations where you know they're weed in most situations but yeah um, I don't know. Sometimes, unfortunately, people, I, you see this with miscanthus in the ditches now. Yep. It's everywhere. Yeah. And I, <sighs> how does that spread? Cause I rhizominously. So does it spread that quickly? Rhizominously? Yeah. That's crazy. It's yeah. So it's, it's everywhere. Uh, and where's it from? Cause pompous grass is from the pompous uh, prairies in South America, but where's miscanthus from? I think it's from. The steppe, like a Eurasian grass, but I might be wrong. Okay. I so look it's, that up. Because there's like three grass prairies, right? It's North American, mm-hmm. the Argentinian or South American, and then yeah. uh, Eurasia. Mm-hmm. Is, there's there's like the prairies out there. Man, that's interesting. And I, someone was explaining to me that part of the reason you have so many Eurasian species that come over here and dominate is we've, we've got a mollusel. Like they have a mollusel, mm-hmm. but then they had the natural predators and checks and balances and you bring over dandelions and we ain't got nothing like that. No. So 
we just have uh, dandelions. <laughs> so, or reed, yeah, reed canary. Oh, my goodness, dude. What that? handles reed canary grass over there? Like, I don't understand. What did they have that took care of it? I don't, maybe they just have labor <laughs> pulling it. <laughs> I mean, I cultivate, I don't know, in terms of like on a – in a natural ecosystem, I don't know. Is it useful for anything? Like, can cow? Can you hay it for cows? Or I don't know anybody who feeds it. No, I'm, I'm sure he uses bedding. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know though. You don't want to spread that seed necessarily. No, no, no. no. It's I, really undesirable. I guess to the pheasants, don't hate it. I guess. Yeah, but it. in the winter, it just yeah, it just is, yeah, it's, it's not gone. not ideal. And well, sure. also what I've heard from people who are really into their pheasant hunting is that. They want. They don't want big blue stem and Indian grass only. They want yep. that switch grass. So because it, it, switch grass has like a fuzzier top and it kind of locks itself in and mm. has and it has uh, more stalks per um, like clump. Interesting. Yeah. Well, hmm. you disagree with me? I'm not disagreeing that they like it for pheasant. I'm just oh, saying, yeah. I man, that's a good question. Let's find a, a native grass that does that. Yeah. I don't know how's Sprabulus doing for pheasants. That's a great grass to have in a prairie restoration. Sprout, little blue stem? No, uh, like, uh, shoot. Now I'm sounding like a botanist. All I know in the. Yeah, what, what's. And we just bonded over making fun of people who speak shoot. Latin. I got to survive in this office, yeah. so <laughs> use my cred where I, I can. Probably, it's not little blue stem. It's definitely not Cytotrauma. Yeah, I'd have to. Man. We're gonna we're gonna do this while sporabulus drop seed. There you go, prairie drop, drop seed. seed. Yeah. Yes, it does. It does well. The the like st- the leaves or the grass stems themselves kind of like curl over mm-hmm. and create their own fluff. Um, you would think drop seed with how like luscious it looks uh, would be really. It's horrible to harvest. Oh yeah, yeah, cutting it it doesn't want to cut. It's like really stiff and strong. But I love our drop seed field for a few reasons. One, it's a different size seed than anything else, um, especially grass-wise. So we don't have to be so picky about making sure all the other grass is out out of it. And for whatever reason, milkweed loves it. World milkweed, butterfly weed, uh, common milkweed, swamp milkweed. So in our field this year, I saw all of those. I saw big blue stem, indie grass field, and side oats grommet. I was like, this is like the closest thing we have on our farm to a prairie. And it's not that tall. So like most of it is only three feet tall. You could walk through it and then, and it's not like crazy itchy. Like my goodness, side oats, grama fields. Oh yeah. 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 I don't know if, if you ever want to come out and hoe those fields with us. It takes us like a week and a half and Ooh. we have to go out and shovel big blue stem out of it. The whole yep. I told dad, I said, you need to buy a farm 10 miles away and plant all our big blue stuff there. Because yep. You can't spray it. We couldn't spray no, it. We actually no. had um, Doug Duran come out with his crew from on X and they filmed us digging it out with like a bunch of volunteers. And I'm, I, I did the math. It was like 120 man hours to do like one 15 acre Oof. field of wow. Indian grass to dig out big blue stem. It just crazy amounts of labor to keep your big blue stem. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I'm not here to rant about that. I'm here to chat with you. Love <laughs> okay. It. No. We do got a boogie here in a second. Cause we're about to hang out with Justin. Is there mm-hmm. anything? Let me say it this way. You can snap your finger and change one thing about this world. What would you change? Hmm. Like a realistic thing or like something that could never, ever happen? 
anything you want. Doesn't have to be realistic. Oh, we can go a little silly then. All right. I would love to snap my finger, and we could go back to you know. It was, I'll just time travel to this because I'm just curious to the Pleistocene. Oh, you wow. know this, right? Yeah, we yeah. got the giant beavers and the yeah. giant sloths and stuff. Just my own kind of interest. I'd, I'd love to Dude. love to see, get killed by some, you know, flat faced bear or something. Yeah, that's the but, dream. But going back to more realistic <laughs> thing, uh, here we go. Let's be more realistic. I want to add basically environmental history, place based environmental history to every child's curriculum in school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's teach Tallgrass Prairie. Let's talk about why it's gone. Yeah. Let's talk about why it existed. And even before that, too. Um, and that, you know, this isn't just an Iowa thing, even though I think it's probably the worst of any place I've been is even when we talk about the past, we think of a little house on the prairie. And our idea of what prairie is is very westernized, not very localized. Yeah. Right? So that's kind of, that's my, that's my that's dream. That's good, man. You know what they say, if you're going to start a regime, you start with the education and you're there. No, I'm totally kidding. Let's but not you, go that far. <laughs> you, you just understand what, what changes culture. And that's really cool. That is really cool. It sounds like you studied it. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I really, really appreciate having you on. You got a great brain, got a brain used for, for farm prairie things. And we like that folks. Thanks so much for hanging out. Don't forget that we are sponsored presented by Hoxie Native Seeds, and uh, so sorry that Kent can't be here, uh, but be tuning in for the rest of the episodes from the people we interviewed here at the Tallgrass Prairie Center. We're very grateful for you guys, and uh, we will see you next time. Conservation happens one mind at a time.